You know, several times in the, the brief uh, three-month history of this church, we've taken a moment to say something about bits of the service. And, and I realize that every time we've done that, it's been for the benefit for those of us who are rookie uh, Anglicans and uh, kind of rookies to uh, liturgy. But we've not ever said anything about why do we sing and that's actually something that comes to us, I mean, from my point of reference, that's something that comes to us through the Jesus movement and the vineyard. So why do we sing? Why do we do what we do here when, when we start out the service? I mean, you wouldn't see that, I don't think, in a typical uh, Anglican setting or Episcopal setting somewhere. And there's actually some good reasons for it. There's now, you know, 40 or more years of history of people doing this, and it's not too much to say, I don't think, that one of the contributions of Calvary Chapel and early Maranatha music and later, of course, even bigger and more profound vineyard music is that it literally has changed the way worship happens all over the world and in every kind of church. And the reasons are that doing what we just did allows us to begin coming together to connect to an audience of one. It's, it's, a, it's a, I mean, I say this jokingly because I've said it, we've all said it, so I mean this jokingly. But it's a profoundly wrong question to walk out after church and go, so what did you get out of worship? Because worship's not for us. Uh, now, we may do things that facilitate worship well, and we may do things that doesn't facilitate worship well, and that's worthy of talking about, I suppose. But worship is for God. It's not for us. And so what it allows us to do is right off the bat is to state our preeminent value. That what we're doing here is being done before this audience of one. And that's the biggest, best, most profound value any of us have. So it, it gives us a way to focus. It, um, it gives us guidance to express our heart. I mean, some of us in this room maybe tend to be a little more emotional, maybe romantic. Others of us tend to be a little more logical, maybe, and, and that sort of thing. And what worship does is it, it catches all of us up into a way of expressing our heart that we may not be able to do if we didn't have words and somebody like Sarah helping us do it. But, you know, you take those lyrics, you take the melodies, you take somebody like Sarah and Noel, and then they can guide us into a way of expressing our heart that we may not be able to do outside of that. And then I guess uh, the other thing that struck me as I was just thinking about this, trying to explain to, now I'm trying to explain to all you Anglicans, ex-Anglicans and Episcopalians, is that, it, you know, you'll also notice that it's not an organ, and it probably never will be. And I'm not down on organs. I mean, when I, I used to play keyboards, and my favorite setting was a Hammond B3. So I'm not down on organs. <laughs> I love them. But there's something we think about doing things in a contemporary idiom. So I'm not saying we'll never have organ music. What I'm saying is that we think there's something about blending together this sort of contemporary idiom with this ancient way of, of praying and doing Eucharist together. And so uh, I think, you know, when you think about that and mixing it with the, you know, all the songs we sing are very textual, they're very scriptural, it calls forth a response from us. All right, so I wonder, that's why we sing. Uh, so I've explained to you lots of other sort of Eucharistic things, that's why we're singing. All right, so our, our readings this morning uh, lead us to think about two of the biggest theological terms in all of the Bible, and that is, the first one is righteousness, and the second one is salvation. And, you know, when you use those terms, you, you know, you might think you kind of know what it is. Like, maybe if you think of righteousness, you might think of the kind of annoying self-righteousness that you don't like. You know what I mean? You know, somebody who's annoyingly self-righteous. I think I might have told a few of you this story 
way back in the spring when we were first doing preview services, but most of you wouldn't have heard it, and it's, it's appropriate in this setting to help understand what we don't mean by righteousness and the kind of you know, self-righteous uh, or annoying self-righteousness that none of them like. So this is one of those typical stories, you know, where you've got, you got four guys in a little airplane, and there's only three parachutes. Have you heard those dumb stories? Okay, so go with me here. There's four guys in a little airplane. There's only three parachutes. Well, the four guys are the young pilot who's got a young family of, you know, like grade school kids. You've got a little boy of about 12. You've got a very old retired priest and a young businessman who's reputed to be like the smartest guy in the world. You know, his job is sort of to fly around the world and somehow through technology, he was tying all of the world's global financial systems together or something. All right, so these four guys in an airplane, only three parachutes. We know the story. The plane starts going down. And the young pilot says, hey, it's really important that I live. I got little kids at home. You know, if I die, my wife will kill me. It's, I guess, so he grabs one of the parachutes and he jumps. So then the smartest man in the world says, hey, I'm the smartest guy in the world. It's really important that I live. All the financial systems of the world are dependent on me. So he jumps, he grabs one of the parachutes and he jumps. Well, that leaves the old retired priest and the young boy and just one parachute. And the old retired priest looks at the young boy and says, you know, son, I've lived a really good long life. I feel like I fulfilled God's calling on my life. I'm ready to die and go be with the Lord. You take that last parachute and jump. And the young boy looks at the old priest and says, ah, relax, Father, the smartest guy in the world just jumped out with my backpack. (laughs) So so (laughs) there is sort of an annoying uh, kind of self-righteousness that none of us like. But actually the Bible, both Old and New Testament, talks a great deal about this business of righteousness. And I honestly think we, we quite don't know how to grasp it. I mean, what do you think of a Hollywood starlet couple who sends a million or five million dollars to Haiti, but spends a good part of their career sort of polluting minds with all kinds of stuff? What do you think of that? Are they good? Or are they not good? What does it mean to be good? Well, the Bible gives us some hints about that. In fact, the Greek term for righteousness is, is a dikaiosune. And the Kaiosuni means to be truly good in the way that God is good. And this is what the text gets us into this morning, our, our, our readings. When, when uh, Isaiah says, hey, look, at this is what God is going to do. He's going to do to Zion. Now, Zion, uh, Zion sometimes means Jerusalem. Sometimes it can mean Israel. You've you got to kind of depend by the context. In this point, it means something like all the people of Israel, all the people of, of um of Jerusalem, meaning, okay, the people of God. This is what God's going to do. God is going to give you a righteousness that will shine out like the dawn. All right, so what is this righteousness? What is God's talking about doing to these people? What is this righteousness? Well, I've said it's not this holier than thou, than thou thing. What it really is, first and foremost, is an attribute of God. So when you think of righteousness, think first of God. Righteousness is God acting according to his essential nature. So when God does what he does, and I've defined to you sometimes God is thinking of, when you think of God, think of completely competent love, like all loving, all powerful, and, when, and then God acts according to that. And, and that's why it's a major attribute of, he, of who he is. It's his righteousness. Now, throughout the Old Testament, the way people see the righteousness of God and the way they talk about it is that God is faithful to the covenant he made with his people. So you all know the story of the Old Testament. 
God's people are consistently unfaithful, unrighteous, but God is never unrighteous. He always stays completely connected to his people and his purposes. And, it, and you can see why this is such a major attribute of God, because it makes him trustworthy. Otherwise, we'd be left with this all-powerful God who maybe was capricious and all over the place and unpredictable. But God isn't that. He is true to who he is in his most essential self. And so when God says to his people, I'm going to make you righteous, what he means is I'm going to give you a new power, a new goodness, a new beauty, I'm going to change your name, and and name in the Bible always means your essential character. You know, you you know those funny Bible names, heel catcher. You know, those those sort of funny. You know, they're all over the place because when people gave people names, they tried to say something about their character. And God says, I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to change you, and I'm going to give you a new heart, and you will then be conformed to the covenant that we've made together as well. So to be righteous means to be truly good. It means something like to be justified or to be aligned. I think I've said to you before, but in my view, it bears repeating. Just memorize this little portion of John 5 from the message where Jesus says, anyone who hears these words of mine and aligns themselves to it has at this moment received an eternal kind of life. And remember, I've said to you, eternal life is not something you get out there when you die. Eternal life is not something out there beyond the stars. Eternal life in the Bible is a different kind of life. It does last for eternity, but it's not primarily a quantitative term. Eternal life in the Bible is a qualitative term. It means to describe a different kind of life. And this is what Jesus said. If you hear my words and you align themselves to them, you take on then the righteousness that God has been wanting to give and you make yourself in that sense righteous. Well, then the prophet says that Zion is going to have this salvation that will be like a burning torch. Well, what is salvation? Salvation essentially is, think of all those things we just described about righteousness, given to us by God through Jesus. So to be saved means, I mean, the the kind of biblical word group means to be rescued or protected from harm or to be put back in place. Think of it that way. Remember uh, Luke 15? You have a lost coin. Well, what do you do when you find it? You put it back in its place. You have a lost sheep. What do you do with it? You put it back in the fold. And so you have these same ideas of alignment, of being put back into place. So salvation includes your personal sins being forgiven. That is obviously unmistakably important. I had some serious sins in my life when I came to faith in Christ as a teenager. I needed forgiveness, undoubtedly. But salvation cannot be reduced to merely your personal sins being forgiven. It includes that, but it goes way farther than that. It means putting you back in your place in covenant righteousness with God. It means that you become humanity as he intended. You become the church as he intended. And this is why this whole business that Paul talks about, about being filled with the Spirit is so important. Because when God takes his people, this is essentially what's happening here. The the kind of backdrop to what's happening in uh, especially the Isaiah passage, but all the way through this story as well, is that people have been in exile, not hearing from God. 
So exile, and then God breaks his silence. And then as the passage says, he reveals his arm. Now, arm in the Old Testament like that means God's capacity, his strength, his ability. So you have exile, no hear from God in a long time. God now begins to speak and says, but I'm going to more than speak. I'm going to act on your behalf and I have the capacity to do it. And then when Isaiah talks about him using his hand, this means his sort of personal touch. So you have exile, God begins to speak. He shows his divine power. He exercises his divine will, but he does it in a way that has his personal touch to it. And then he adds this promise, and I will not rest. So however many thousands of years ago Isaiah said this, God has not rested. And your proof. I don't know about you, but it took God a bit to find me. And had he rested, I don't know. But he has not rested. He is not resting. And he is continuing to bring people, human beings, back to his intentions for them. So he says to Israel, I'm going to give you a hope, a new life. I'm going to keep you, guard you, uphold you. Again, this is sort of think of that completely competent love idea that God will uphold you. And I know it doesn't seem like that right now. I, I, I was thinking this week that it would be kind of like going up to a park bench, you know, where old retired people play chess or something. And you m- might walk up to a chessboard if you know anything about chess. I really don't. But imagine somebody who knows something about chess walking up to this game and seeing the guy in the white shirt. He's really getting his tail kicked. You know, somebody could walk up to the board and go, this looks bad. You're, you're in bad shape there, buddy. And am I the only one that thinks the world sometimes seems that way? Like, where is God's arm? You know, where is God's hand? You know, how, how, how come these bad things happen to people we love? How come bad things happen in places like Haiti? You know, you can look at the board and go, God, this, is, this doesn't look good. But it's not the end of the game. And God is not resting. And at, some play, and at some point, everything will be justified. Everything will be made righteous. Everything will be put back together. And that's what God's saying. I'm going to give you a new nature, a fresh start, new possibilities. All right, well, if you're going to do that, if you're going to be God's people in that way, then God says, you need the capacity to do that. You need my arm and my hand working through you. And this is what Paul means when he talks about the gifts of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit are literally just little aspects, little gifts of God's grace. They are God's capacity. Just think of his arm, think of his hand. He's got this people now who he's making righteous, which means they're going to be my people doing what I do, cooperating with me, living these lives of constant creative goodness through the power of my Spirit for the sake of others. So if you're going to do that, you need capacities to do that. And so Paul says this new life of righteousness, it's not going to be like your old life when you were led astray by dumb idols. It's not going to be like that. I mean, picture Jesus walking up to a group of 15-year-old boys hanging outside a 7-Eleven, you know, drinking Red Bull or Rockstar or whatever it is that's the, the, the you know, boys drink. And, and picture Jesus walking up and saying, the power of the Spirit's not like that. The energy of the Spirit is not like what you get from caffeine and sugar. It's something different. 
And that's what he's saying to these guys. There's something about when God changes your name, he changes your nature, he gives you this new place, he's also going to give you the capacity to do it. That means all over this room are people who have capacities from the Spirit. But I want to take just a moment this morning to say say this because I think it's important. Sometimes we think of Paul's metaphor of the body, you know, that, well, you know, I'm not a hand, you know, I'm a knee, I'm not a knee, I'm a foot, you know, that kind of thing. We've tended to read those passages in Paul as if, well, you have the gift of prophecy and you have the gift of tongues and you have the gift of discernment. And so that we read him as if each one of us has a gift or we are a gift. But it's actually not the best way to read him. The best way to read him is that upon his people, the whole congregation of God, or upon his people, a congregation of God like this, that God can move through you in any one of these gifts at any time as he chooses, right? Isn't that what your reading says? That God can move through any of you at any time in any gift. And we need to know that and and celebrate that because what's going to happen is this church goes from being three months old to six months old to a year old to five years old is that God the Holy Spirit is literally going to stir some of you up and some of you will have gifts and anointings for teaching and others for ministering to the poor and others for helping us think through global social justice issues I mean you're all going to have different angles and it's very important that all that be celebrated but if you're really going to live this in your day in and day out life you have to be alert to the promptings, <coughs> excuse me, the promptings of the Spirit at any time. Right? <clears throat> Here's what I mean. I mean, I, like, I can't remember the last time I stood in front of a group of people and, and wondered, oh, I hope the gift of teaching comes, right? I just, no, I just know that's one of my gifts or gift of leadership or, you know, certain gifts in church planning or evangelism. I just kind of know they're there. But if I walk into a hospital room and if I were to see one of you in pain, I like all my, I short circuit. I literally get pains in my stomach and my whole body starts feeling like faint because I can't stand to see people I care about in pain. And in those moments, I have to say, oh God, will you, I hope the gift of healing will come here, right? But so it's wherever you are. If you're talking with somebody at a coffee shop and, and you need some wisdom, well, then you need to ask for it. You might not think I carry around in my pocket the gift of wisdom and I can just pull it out, but you can ask for it. You can hope for it. You can believe that God, through the power of the Spirit, is going to give his people the capacity to live out this new calling, this new nature, this new alignment with him that he's calling us into. Now, we see that in this sign from Jesus. And, you know, we tend to think of terms like miraculous, and that's fine. But really what John's doing, the, the, the sort of brief outline of the Gospel of John, is that John shows Jesus doing these seven miracles or, these, or giving these seven signs, and then he shows how people relate to that. So with this marriage in Cana, first of all, these marriage feasts lasted about a week, um, they weren't getting drunk the way we think of getting drunk, but, you know, just imagine, do, do you guys drink like Martinelli's at Christmas or Thanksgiving or New Year's? Well, just think if you were having Thanksgiving for a week and you were drinking Martinelli's all day, right? You know, at some point, you'd kind of lose your taste buds for Martinelli's, right? Unless somebody busted something out that went, you went, wow, that's really apple right? That's more apple than what we had earlier in the week. That's what's happening here. 
Like, this is amazing wine. And the reason this was a big deal is it wasn't just like, oh, honey, can you run down to the, you know, Vons and get us a couple more bottles of Martinelli's? No, these wedding feasts last a week, and to have run out of wine literally would have been a social faux pas that would have followed these people the rest of their lives. We're told by historians that the quarters for these week-long feasts of the women were right next to where the wine was. That's not a sexist joke. It's just what it was. The women were near the wine. And so Mary sees what's happening, tell Jesus to do something about it. Jesus being in tune always with his father, living in this kind of alignment, but yet I think growing in his own self-understanding, says to his mom, woman, this is not my time. If I start doing things like that, I'm on the road to I don't know where. And so he says, this is not my time. Like he doesn't want to do anything about it. Finally, he does. And the message here is actually very simple. That the kingdom of God expressed in the incarnation of Christ is not primarily a religious issue. The incarnation comes right in the middle of a village wedding. The kingdom of God is fundamentally a secular reality. It's the church that wants to always distinguish herself by her religious nature. But God distinguishes himself by his solidarity with his creation, his constant solidarity, and then calling his creation back to him. And in this case saying, I'm going to give you a righteousness that you could not attain of your own. I'm going to change your very nature. I'm going to give you the power of the spirit, the gifts of the spirit to allow you to live in that. And you're going to be my people. So Jesus is living in that reality. And so when Jesus turns this water to wine, of course, it's an amazing miracle. Um, It literally rescued these people from social destruction. But it was primarily a sign. And it worked. What's the last line say? And the disciples put their faith in him. They saw what Isaiah prophesied, the arm of God working. They saw it in a personal touch, not from some distant, religious, mystical, wooey-wooey thing, but God caring about the social reputation of an innocent family. So it's not just a strong arm, it's a personal touch that makes a personal difference in the real lives of real people. So when I, when I think about us and, and when I think about our future and I, I think of the scope of how this might work out for us, how, how we take on as the people of God, this new nature that he has for us in covenant righteousness with him, which is simply saying being humanity as God intended, being the church as he intended. When we think about that, what is the scope and scale of it? And I think, and we're going to be done here, that for me, first, it's personal. So that I try to take on these practices of noticing others, of listening, of just being curious about their lives. I mean, any of you have gotten to know me. My daughter accuses me of interrogating people. Dad, why are you interrogating my friends? Well, I'm just saying how's school, you know, what's math like? You know, I just have tried to take on these habits of paying attention, noticing what's happening with others, being curious about their lives. Why? Because it makes me present. Well, why do I want to be present to somebody? Because being present to somebody is in alignment with what God wants for us as human beings. And then it makes me alert to the Spirit. I mean, I've probably said to a few of you already just in our brief history something like, gosh, I don't know, maybe I'm crazy. 
but I think maybe the Lord's saying this. Well, I can tell you that the pattern there is, I tried to make myself curious, present, alert to the Spirit, and then, gosh, I think maybe the Lord's saying we should do thus or so, or maybe the Lord's saying this to you. Well, that's all kind of the personal, um, in terms of scope, that's the personal part of this. But I think there's a local scope, and that is joining with others to serve our local community in acts of compassion and, and identification with their brokenness. And so, you know, yesterday, a few of us were at Hart Park in Orange. I don't know, five or ten of us or something were at Hart Park in Orange feeding the homeless. Why? That's just sort of a local way of expressing God's personal encounter. Okay, it wasn't a week-long feast at a wedding, but it was other human beings who just need something to eat. And so you see, we're identifying. We're making ourselves present and then alert to the Spirit to talk to people as He gives us. And then so personally, locally, regionally, I can see us in the future taking on kind of maybe Orange County issues wherever we can make a difference. Maybe even taking on state issues wherever we can make a difference. Advocating for marginalized people. Um, I don't know. I mean, we'll have to see what happens. But I think when you start thinking of what is the scope and scale of this righteousness, what is the scope and scale of me using my gifts personally, locally, regionally, and finally globally? And it makes me so happy that for the first time in however long we've been meeting, three and a half months or something, the first time that we're ever going to have said a word about money in this church is going to be for the sake of human destruction in Haiti. And so this morning, we're going to take an offering as, as we usually do. Um, but then uh, towards the end of uh, worship, we are at the end of our time together, we're going to take a special offering and we're going to send it through compassion uh, you know the ministry compassion kids we're going to send it through compassion to these uh, desperate kids in haiti it's just i'm just so happy to me it's so wonderfully symbolic that the first time we raised money wasn't for new chairs or a new pa or for a building but we're just simply spontaneously saying lord we care we're making ourselves present we realize that this is now a global world and that the scope and scale of what he wants to do first to us in changing our nature giving us the power and person and work of the Spirit to work through us has personal, local, regional, and global implications. And we're just going to patiently push ourselves into that. I don't care if you put five bucks in the plate for Haiti because to me, this is just a symbol. It's a wonderful, gracious symbol that God is making our first word ever about money for the sake of others. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www.myholytrinitychurch.com.